I had a couple people come to me last week after service and ask for a couple of different sermon topics. And so I said, okay, we're taking a couple weeks in between last week when we finished Ephesians and then Palm Sunday, which is not next week, but the week after that. Um, and of course, Easter then is the week after that. And I said, all right, we can cover one or two of these. So today we're going to handle, if I may be so bold, the easier is not the word I'm looking for, the less involved of the two topics that were asked for. Because the one I could do a whole series on. And I want to give it its due diligence. Not that I don't want to give everything in the Bible its due diligence. But I said, okay, this one we can spend one week on and we're going to be okay. So this week, even though we technically did it last week, and it might make more sense to do it last week, we're going to do it this week. And we're going to talk a little bit about communion. I was talking to my mom, um, and I mentioned to her that one of the things that I take for granted a lot of the time is that I grew up in church I had two great parents who allowed me to ask questions and who taught me, didn't just say, give me pat answers, but would teach me things. And so I take for granted a lot of the times the amount of knowledge and information God has allowed me to know. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that I'm the smartest person in this room. I know for a fact I'm not. But I have a lot of head knowledge and a lot of different areas theologically. And so I, I, I kind of take for granted some things such as, uh, let me tell this story. The one day, I was eating lunch with somebody. And I said, well, let's pray before we eat. And I prayed. And they went, why do you do that? And I had to stop and think for a minute because I went, why do I do that? Well, we always did it when I was a kid. So I've just continued to do it. But is there a the theological reason for doing this? And I had never actually thought about it. And there is. I'm thanking God for the food that he provided for me because it is his food. It is his resources. It is everything. I'm thanking him for giving me those resources to keep my body going, right? But I had never thought about it because I just kind of thought it was second knowledge, secondhand information, you know? Just like, okay, here it is. It's fine. And I think a lot of times I do that with a lot of things. And I think a lot of times we do that with a lot of things. A lot of us here grew up in church, right? A lot of us have spent, okay, I've spent 26 and a half years in church. Some of you laugh at that as a paltry amount. You can't even remember the last 26 and a half years. But no, but here's the thing, right? So we take these basic things that we do. We do communion here at this church 12 times a year, give or take. We do it once a month. Sometimes that pastor might get a little wild and be like, hey, let's do it once more. So now we're at 13, and that's a bad number, so we'll have to do it another two times because 14 is not a great number either. But 15, that's a good number. So, no, but so we do it. We do communion here at this church 12 times a year, just about. Bridgewater used to do it. I don't know if they still do it, but Bridgewater would do it 10 times a year. Some churches like Presbyterians or Methodists or Catholics, they do it every week. So they'll do it 52 times a year, right? There's nothing in Scripture that says do this this many times times. The problem is a lot of times when we do something over and over and over again, it becomes just something that we do. And it has nothing to do with necessarily the number because we do it 12 times and we a lot of times look at it the same way as somebody who does it 52 times. It's just something that we do. You know, maybe we look at ourselves a little better because we go, well, since we take off three weeks in between each one, we're a little bit more holy because we're a little bit more reverent when we actually do it. Maybe. Or maybe because we think that we're not. We're going to talk about communion because it's important that we understand what communion is and why we do it. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is the quintessential, you know how chapter um, um, 13, right, is the love chapter. 
This is the quintessential place you go to when you're talking about communion, right? This or you go to the Gospels themselves. And we're going to talk about that a little bit um, in the sermon. 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to be in, in uh, verses 23 through 34. We are going to take a look, if you have your Bibles, we are going to take a look later in the sermon and a few verses before this as well. But our main crux is going to be right here, 23 through 34. Let's read it. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 34. And in my Bible, this is nicely titled, The Lord's Supper. It reads, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does the... Excuse me, I'm going to restart verse 29 here. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So, of course, this is Paul writing, right, to the church in Corinth. And uh, the church in Corinth, if you read throughout the two letters to the Corinthians, have a lot of issues in a lot of different ways. They're very similar to us in that way, right? And here in this one... We're going to read a little bit earlier as well. What's happening is they are, if I may use this term in church, and excuse me if I offend you with this, they are bastardizing the Lord's Supper. They are completely changing it to mean something that it no longer is. They are sinning by taking the Lord's Supper. This thing that God says, Christ says, when he's actually doing it, do this in remembrance of me, they are not doing it in remembrance of him. They are instead making a mockery of it. So let's talk about it. Number one on your note sheets there if you have it, the origin, the origin. It's important to understand where things come from. So we read of this on the night of his betrayal, right? I talked about it a little bit when we did communion last week, but I'll reiterate it here. We oftentimes think that he's in this house of this lowly person. That is probably not true based upon the fact that he's in the upper room of a house and they have all this food. This was probably a fairly wealthy person in Israel so they're in this upper room, seated around the table, and he passes out the bread first, right? And he says, this, body is my, this bread is my body, which has been broken for you, and they don't quite get it. And then he passes around a cup. Now, a lot of times we have this idea of the cup from Indiana Jones, right? How many of you have seen the third Indiana Jones movie, right? Solid film, Harrison Ford, good actor, William Shatner, okay actor. But in the end of the movie, right near the end, in the climax, he's got to pick the right cup from a whole bunch of different cups. And there's these ornate cups and stuff like that. And he picks the simple wooden cup. And that is completely incorrect, even though he's technically picked the right cup. Most likely, this cup would have looked more like a stone basin, a smaller stone basin. 
that's more likely what the cup would have looked like because those are the types of cups they used back then. They didn't necessarily use the types of cups we think of today from medieval times, right? So that's, what, that's the scene that we're in. They're all seated around this room. They've just had their meal, and then they pass around this cup. And I wrote down in there the different places in the Gospels on your note sheets that you can find the different accounts of the Lord's Supper if you'd like to go read those on your own. But Jesus says, I want to focus a little bit more on the cup because we often just say this cup is my blood. But what he actually says is the cup is the new covenant in his blood. It's not just supposed to represent his blood. He is creating a new covenant between him and humanity. What's a covenant? It's a promise. And usually it had two sides. You do something and I do something. And if both of those things happen, then this will happen. When we read throughout scripture and we see a broken covenant, who is the one who broke the covenant? It is never God. It is always humanity. Why? Because we're fickle. We're not good at keeping promises. So what he's saying is when he does this, he goes, this symbolizes not just my blood, which is the price paid for the covenant, but it symbolizes this new covenant that I'm creating, that I will give the way to heaven. You have to accept it. You accept me as your Lord and Savior, and you go to heaven. That's the covenant that he's creating on that night. It is the most powerful covenant promise ever that God has made at any point. Because we're the ones who ran away from him. He did not have to make a way back for us. He chose to because he loved us enough to do it. And so when we take this cup... Right? We, we usually pull this table out to about here, and the, I sit behind it, and I have two other of the board members with me, and we pass out this cup with a little bit of grape juice in it. Maybe if we're trying to wake you up a little bit, it's a cranberry grape juice, just give you a little kick in the morning. Side note, because I'm a pastor who has rabbit trails and I can't help but do this. So one time I was in a church and we were doing communion, and I'm telling you, that grape juice had turned. It was not cranberry grape juice. It had that kick of wine in it. And I looked at my dad who was next to me because I've never had wine. But I went, something's not right. And I looked at my dad and he was like, yeah, that's fermented. And I was like, thankfully, it's just this just tiny bit. It's all good. All that to say, the, the good ladies who help get communion ready in the morning, if you're ever like, this might have turned, just call me. I'll go buy a thing of grape juice. It'll be all right. It's good times in church. But, so here's the thing, right? So... <laughs> It might make the sermon a little bit better. I don't know. So this cup is not just a reminder of what he did on the cross. It's a reminder of this new covenant that he created for us and with us. And that's the reason that it's so important. That's the reason he says, do this in remembrance of me. Because we have a tendency to forget. We remember what he did on the cross. But we have a tendency to forget truly what it meant for us. Some of us have been saved a very long time. A lot of you in this room have been saved longer than I've been alive. And I've been saved over 20 years. And in that time, we just kind of lose sight of what God did for us, of the new covenant that he created. We couldn't do it. He created it. And that's why we take up communion. That's the origins of it. And that's why he says, listen, do it until I come. Because you humans, you're fickle. You need a reminder. So if you need that reminder once a month, which is what we do it here, great. Maybe you need it 52 times a year. 
Maybe, and here's the truth of the matter, we all need it 365 days a year or 366 on a leap year. And that's the nature of it. So, that's the origin. Number two on your note sheets there, what to do. What to do. Because Paul doesn't just leave it there and say, okay, do it, now go figure it out. He talks about what to do. Not how to pass out the elements, but how you are supposed to be when you're taking up communion. Examine yourself for judgment. I always say here, right, if you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, then we don't care what denomination you're from, you can take up communion with us because we're all one body. But then I also, a lot of times, leave some space in there for us to examine ourselves because it's important. Because here's the thing, church. If I may be so bold, I know for a fact that you all are dirty, rotten sinners every day. I also know for a fact that I am. And I also know for a fact that we all miss quite a lot of our sin. God doesn't, but we do. And as I sit up here behind this beautiful table, and I sit there, God sometimes just starts popping into my head all these little things that I did this past week. And I'm like, I don't even remember that. But he's helping me to examine myself so that I can ask forgiveness for the things that I didn't even know I had done yet. Because he's good like that. And he wants us to ask forgiveness. You examine yourself for who you are. Do you have a sin against your brother? Do you have a gripe against your brother or sister? And when I was a kid and heard that, I was like, well, yeah, I always have a gripe against my brother or sister. She was elbowing me in the car on the ride here. What am I supposed to do? Do you have an offense against another person? Then go take care of it. Then come back. The Bible tells us that. That doesn't mean to resolve the whole situation. That means you have to have the clear conscience, though, which means you go ask forgiveness. There are many times in my life, if I may be so bold as to brag for just a minute, I tend to a lot of times end up being the bigger person. This happens because, here's the pattern, somebody keeps needling me and needling me and needling me until finally I snap. Sometimes it doesn't take much. Sometimes if I'm in the right mindset, it takes quite a lot. So I snap and then I go, gosh darn it. I'll go be the one that apologizes because I know it's the right thing to do. Somebody asked me one time when I was in college, Sam, you always do the right thing. Why is that? And I said, because I know who's going to find out if I don't. And I wasn't just talking about God. I was also talking about my earthly father. But we don't want to do the right thing all the time. We do it anyway. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to be. And God says, examine yourself because I'm going to judge you. So you better examine yourself too. Might as well clear up as much as you can before you get here. Ask forgiveness and examine yourself. Why are you taking communion? Is it just, well, it's the thing we're doing. Is it just, well, we do this every month on the first Sunday of the month, or last month we happened to do it on the second Sunday of the month because the first Sunday of the month was snowy and there weren't a lot of people here, so we switched it a day, a week. Is it just because you've done it your whole life and that's the Christian thing you're supposed to do? Or are you taking up communion to remind yourself of who God is, of the covenant that was made? That's what he's asking you to examine yourself for, not just your sin, but why are you doing this today? The other thing is, this is not supposed to be sustenance for you. Now, 
I've mentioned this before, but the way that we take up communion is not the way that they took it up in the early church times. Communion was not just a little hunk of bread and a little cup of juice or wine, depending on which, what, what denomination you're in or what church you're in, right? It was a whole meal. You came together and had fellowship together as a, as a body of believers in that local area. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with how we do it. I'm saying oh, that that's not how the original church did it. So, it was not supposed to be your main sustenance, though. You see, here's what's happening. When you read this in the verses before that, if you want to go back and read them at some point, what's happening is the people of Corinth are showing up, and before everybody gets there, they're eating everything. Now, we as Baptists know what a good potluck is, and that's essentially what's going on here, except they weren't waiting for everybody to show up. It was first come, first serve, baby. And Paul says, no, no, that's not what this was supposed to be. You're supposed to eat together. Therefore, if you are so hungry that you can't wait, eat before you get there. Stop off at the local McDonald's and get a hamburger or whatever fast food they had back then. Probably McDonald's. <laughs> eat before you get there if you are so hungry that you just can't wait. Notice Paul doesn't say, learn self-control and sit there and stare at the food. Don't tempt yourself. Eat before you get there. And this plays into the next part. There's also not supposed to be any division among you. I want to read verses 17 through 19 real quick to you guys. He reads, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you and in part... I believe it. For there must, there must be also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. So here's what Paul is saying. You guys come together, and you're still divided. Again, we as Baptists are great at this. There are hundreds of denominational Baptist churches, different denominations of Baptists, in the United States of America. Not the world, the country that you live in. Because we as Baptists hate being together so much that we didn't want to be with each other. We know food, and we know how to get away from people. Solid. Except for when it comes to this stuff. So Paul says, listen, because this is all in the same context. When you come together, don't be so hungry that you can't wait. Eat a snack beforehand. Don't have any division among your body. That doesn't mean you don't have a disagreement with people. I know for a fact that some of you I have disagreements with in this room, and I've had them before, and I will have them in the future. Okay. I'm pretty sure Maddie and I had a disagreement this morning. Okay. This also isn't saying put on a face when you come in here. It's not saying put on that, that as, as the Casting Crown song goes, right, the stained glass masquerade. Don't, don't put on a mask when you come in the place. It's not saying to pretend to be something you're not. What it's saying is, though, you can have disagreements with people, but don't let it be divisive. Don't let it create a division between you and them, a chasm. You can disagree, but don't let it drive you apart from people. And if your disagreement, here's... There is one thing in all of Scripture, one disagreement in all of Scripture that should divide you from somebody else. And it is if they believe that Christ is not 
the only way to heaven. If they believe that, you can be divided from them. Not rude to them. Divided from them. But if they believe that Christ is the Son of God and is the only way to heaven, and he died and rose again for your sins, then you better not have division with them. That means Catholics. That means Presbyterians. That means Methodists. That means those icky Pentecostals. That means other Baptists, Lutherans, all of them. If they believe part of the body and the Bible in so many different places especially Paul says there is one body made in one spirit see communion's not quite as uninvolved as we like to think that it is sometimes there's quite a lot that goes into it for us I thought strongly about and I have got bread out there but I thought strongly about taking up communion again this week we're not going to not this week but I thought maybe and here's the other thing. I want to hit on this before we end. Communion is not bread and wine or bread and grape juice. Communion can be pizza and orange Gatorade. Communion can be chicken parm and a nice Chianti. Communion can be anything. It's the heart that's behind it that matters. Now, we do it this way, right, with little hunks of bread and a, and a cup of grape juice. I've been in churches that do it with those wafers that I'm pretty sure are actually just cardboard. In a couple of weeks, in fact, next month, we will take up communion by passing out a little self-serve cup because it's Easter and we're assuming we're going to have some extra people here. And so in the interests of being COVID safe, again, not being scared but being wise, we're not going to have everybody touch the same plate. We're going to pass it out like that. That's communion. I've been in churches where they use matzah bread, little tiny thin sheets of bread that dry the mouth out as soon as it gets within 20 feet of you. You need that juice. I always felt bad for those pastors because they got to be up there, they got to talk afterwards. I don't know how they do it. God bless them. Some churches like to do it by intinction, which means you take the bread, you dip it in the cup, and you put it in your mouth. I have one major problem with that. Why would you want to eat soggy bread? But that's communion as well. Some churches do it, whereas they pass out each element, you just immediately take it. We ask that you wait. We all partake together. Some churches pass around one hunk of bread and everybody rips off a piece from it in one cup. You see, here's the thing. It's not how you do communion that matters. It's why you're doing it and that you're doing it that matters. So next month, when we take up our communion, in a different way than we normally do here at First Baptist Church, it doesn't change what we're doing it for and why we're doing it. And no matter who is in this, these pews, if they've accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior, then we rejoice together and remember Christ's death and resurrection till the day that he comes, or the day he calls us home, whichever one comes first. I don't know about you, I'm really hoping we don't have to do communion that much longer because that means he's called us home. I hope that for the person that asked, I hope that answers some of your questions. And if you are not the person that asked, I hope that answered some of your questions as well. There's a lot that can go into it. For the other person that asked, we probably won't handle your topic yet because, like I said, that's a couple of weeks. And I want to give that its due couple of weeks. So, uh, but I have not forgotten. In fact, I'm just working on it. We're going to be talking about prayer in that one. Uh, so I've not forgotten. I'm working on it. Speaking of prayer... 
Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you this morning. We thank you that you, you allow us to come together. We thank you that you gave us this, this way of remembering you. We ask, Father, that when we do communion, whether it be once a month like we do here, or a little bit more often, or a little bit less often, we ask that for the body, that we would do it in remembrance of you, Father. We understand that the only reason we can do it is because you gave your life for us. We praise you. We ask for safety on our way homes this afternoon. And it's in the name of your son that we pray. Amen.